0: For more, we're joined by Annan Menon, Director of the UK in a Changing Europe. Annan, welcome to the programme once again. Thanks very much. There's a sense of Groundhog Day about all this. But what are the main areas of disagreement left?
1: Uh, well, when you say left, it's not like any of the main areas of disagreement have actually been resolved as yet. And they're the same as they've been since the very start. There's the question of fisheries, which on an aggregate economic level is a bit silly because fisheries are quite trivial economically for both the UK and the EU. But both sides have dug their heels in. And what each side is asking for is irreconcilable with what the other side is asking for. And there are these so-called level playing field conditions. The EU wants the UK to sign up to minimum standards on environmental protection, workers' rights, and to its rules on state aid. The UK side is saying... But hang on, we're leaving the EU. That means we're not going to be tied by EU rules. So there's a gap between the two sides there. And finally, just the overall sort of philosophy of the negotiations, if you like. The EU are very keen that everything is resolved in one deal under one institutional framework. Uh, The UK is saying, no, we don't need to do that. We can just do a selection of different sorts of deals covering different areas that are completely separate from each other. And on that, again, there's been very little movement uh, by either side.
2: So fisheries, not that big, we know, but trade in services is incredibly large and very important to the UK. So do you spy any progress um, in the areas of trade in services and also security?
1: Well, on services specifically, uh, very little in the way of progress. The British government has made quite an ambitious ask in the way of services. So, for instance, Uh, One of the things we're after is recognition of qualifications that allow professionals to go and uh, sell their services in the European Union. The problem with services is this, that the barriers to trade are not tariffs or quotas or all the things that affect goods. They tend to be the rules each side has in place. And of course, that runs slap bang into the UK government's red line, which is we don't want to be bound by EU rules. What the EU say is you're either bound by our rules or it's hard to sell services. So there's a bit of an impasse on that. Uh, on security more generally, uh, there hasn't been that much dis- discussion of it as yet, which in itself I think is cause for concern. But there are two issues, I think. One, uh, we will be outside of decision-making institutions when it comes to foreign and security policy. So it's not clear how great a role Britain can play in collaborating with the EU there. And when it comes to things like police cooperation, anti-terrorism cooperation, The key issue is actually data. Unless we get an agreement with the European Union that gives us access to the various EU databases on people of interest to security forces, we automatically lose all our access from the 31st of December this year. And that will seriously hamper crime fighting in this country.
0: Let me ask you the question, which, which I think was the title of one of your reports, of course, quite recently, which is what would trading on WTO terms mean? Because in the most basic sense, it's held up as this potential disaster, not least, of course, coming on the back of all the damage that's been done to the UK economy uh, through the virus crisis. But if it actually happened and we wake up the next morning, I mean, what sort of landscape is there? What will actually happen?
1: Well, it's worth just being clear. The WTO provides a floor, a basic sort of guideline as to what states, all states who are members, have to do to try and make trade as easy as possible. But the thing is, that floor is quite low. States aren't asked to do very much. So if we start trading on WTO terms, that automatically means that there will be tariffs on uh, goods, agricultural goods in particular, going uh, into the European Union. There will be checks on products going into the European Union. And if we as the UK say, OK, we're not going to charge tariffs or we're not going to have checks – the one thing that WTO rules is absolutely clear about is if we do it for the EU without having a free trade agreement with them, we have to do it for every single country that is a member of the WTO. And that's quite a big ask. Not checking goods that come in from any other country in the world, because we're not doing it with the European Union, it raises all sorts of health and safety and sort of public health issues.
2: Hmm. Okay, Uh, But then politically, I suppose, in all of this, um, can Boris Johnson afford a no-deal exit? Um, Indeed, would that not actually be better for him uh, in some ways? Um, You know, because there are still many of his own MPs who want Brexit uh, done and completed, sort of no questions asked.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we could pass that question in several ways. Firstly, because, in a sense, Brexit legally has been done. We're no longer a member state. The big issue now, the two big issues now are whether we try and extend this transition period that keeps trading terms with the EU the same as they were when we were a member state. And I think the simple answer to that is the government won't do that because it said it won't and it's committed to delivering on what it said. The second thing on the deal itself is I think I'm pretty certain that the government would rather leave with a deal than without a deal. Why? Well, several reasons. Firstly, a deal would be less damaging economically than no deal. And a deal, for instance, if we end up leaving with no deal, it makes the border, the customs and regulatory border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland even harder because goods would have to be checked in a way they wouldn't if we had a trade deal that uh, that dealt with goods. The other thing, of course, is politically, it's a better look for the prime minister to say, look, despite all the, you know, the doomsters and gloomsters, as he would put it, Uh, I've managed to sign a trade deal, and it's a great trade deal. I've delivered on what I said. So I think the Prime Minister would rather have a deal. That being said, all the signs from the British government are...
0: the Irish dimension to all this. and In fact, we're going to be talking to an Irish member of the European Parliament in the next part of the programme, examining some of the issues uh, about the borders that might exist between Northern Ireland and the Republic. But actually, let's pick up on something that's quite interesting, which is, OK, if not a deal with the EU, what other deals could be on the table? We've heard a lot of push about US-UK trade deal uh there there might be all kinds of options i suppose we were speaking to patrick minford this morning the economist famously pro-brexit talking about the opportunities out there but I i mean are there many big deals on offer well
1: i mean all the countries in the world are out there and we're very free to negotiate with them uh there are several things to bear in mind i think one that geography matters when it comes to trade countries tend to trade far more with countries that are near them than countries that are far away so uh the treasury's own figures Uh, forecast that if we sign trade deals with China, with Indonesia, with the United States, they won't serve to make up economically for the trade we're going to lose with the European Union simply because we trade so much more with the European Union. The other thing to bear in mind, I suppose, is the impact of the pandemic on trade. International trade has crashed following the pandemic because of, uh, you know, far less shipping, far less air travel, far less cross-border trade going on. And one of the political impacts of COVID, I think, has been that many governments are now saying, actually, the pandemic has shown how dangerous it is to be reliant on international supply chains, to not be self-sufficient on things like food, medical supplies, uh, drugs and things like that. So coming out of the pandemic, even if the British government were to say, okay, we're going to gamble on international trade, it's far from clear how much international trade there is going to be or whether or not the people we're trying to sign trade deals with are actually becoming more protectionist and more hostile to free trade. So it's quite a gamble.
2: Yeah, uh, interesting. Um, what about, you mentioned coronavirus, uh, through all of this crisis, how much cooperation do you think there's actually been between the UK and the EU when it comes to the pandemic? I mean, PPE was was one issue, if you recall, you know, right at the beginning um, when the UK government did not want to... Uh, be involved, it would seem, in the group purchase of PPE that um, that the EU was undertaking.
1: Absolutely. There's been very little in the way of collaboration in fighting COVID between the UK and the EU. It's worth pointing out, actually, that one of the striking things, if you look at Europe as a whole throughout this pandemic, is how all the states in Europe, even the member states of the European Union, have failed to learn lessons from each other. So the Italians uh, got the virus badly first. But each country, even though some developed it later, made exactly the same mistakes as the Italians about not getting into lockdown quickly enough, not ordering sufficient stocks of PPE. There's been an absence of an ability to learn from each other's mistakes that's been true across the European Union and doesn't just apply to us in the UK.